日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris, and today Nate and I talked again with a Japanese antique armor dealer and expert Trevor Absalon about Japanese armor. This time we had an interesting talk about the darker side of the Japanese armor trade inside and outside of Japan. So, well, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Trevor, as far as、uh, when you got started, Um, was your intent to kind of be a seller or were you more interested in collecting and you just sort of developed into a, a business? Yeah, that's a, a good question, actually. I originally started,、um, I was a collector and I'd been a collector not of Japanese items specifically, but of antiques,、uh, specifically sort of Victorian period cavalry helmets and stuff since I was in my early teens. And naturally, when I moved to Japan, Um, collecting is like any addiction, it's hard to shake. And,、um, and I was you know, desperate to buy some sort of antique and I couldn't find what I used to buy. And、um, the next closest thing was you know, sort of samurai armor. I stumbled across my first piece and I thought, wow, that's absolutely amazing. Had to have it, bought it. And my collecting addiction continued in Japan. And over the years, I would find I was. You know, coming across similar pieces and you had to weigh it out. Well, well this one's better than that one. Fundamentally, they're the same thing. And so you'd have those inevitable doubles and, you know, you push one to the side. And space being a premium in Japan, you know, these would go into a box and you couldn't keep them. And、um, someone told me one day, he said, Well, what are you going to do with that, these extras? And,、uh, and he, I said, I don't know. I, I should really sell them. I don't need them. And he said, Well, why don't you try eBay? And I'd never heard of eBay. And this has got to be about,、uh, I guess, 1998, 99, right. maybe. Right. And I think eBay had just sort of come online within a, a year or two of that anyway. And it was probably just heading into its pinnacle, at least when it was a good market. And,、um, and I was still even a bit naive when it came to computers, but I sort of got on, blundered my way through it, put this helmet on, sold it, and was like, Wow. I actually sold it and I made money. And I thought, brilliant, this will feed my addiction, right? So right. I、uh, sold the helmet, made money, could recycle that money into buying more pieces. And so I cleaned up and went through all of my redundant pieces and then realized, hey, you know, as I'd go out to buy new things or, you know, search for them, you'd obviously stumble, stumble across something that you already had one of and say, well, I don't need that for my own collection, but if I bought that, I could sell it. Make money and feed the collection again. And、right. it gradually went from collecting into a business. And、um, I found, I was working for the Japanese government actually then, and I was finding I was making more money doing my weekend collecting,、uh, you know, a little side business than I was actually working for the government. And I was enjoying it far more. And at one point I just went, there's a business here. This is something I've always wanted to do, work for myself. I love antiques. I love these items. I'm very interested in them. And it's a really fun way to make a living, or it was, it was at that point. So, and、uh, so it grew into a business, yes.、Uh, so, without the uh, internet, uh, would it have been a realistic path for you to sort of develop this business?、No. I don't think so, no. Because you would have to have a shop front, you know, you'd have to have a store, and all these、right. things. I was so focused on one item, it would be very hard to be a specialist in just Japanese armor. And make a living, I think, just out of a storefront. 
Um, not to say it couldn't be done, but you would need far more wealth than I had at that point, or do now for that matter. And um, it, it just wouldn't be realistic. Um, but the internet, again, you think if you're running a business, you have to have merchandise to appeal to a, a wide variety of people to get them to come into your store. And, you know, you'd have to have your store on a, on a main street or something. A lot of people might want to come in to look at samurai armor, but how many are actually going to buy? So right. you probably wouldn't do much business, and therefore you wouldn't be in business. But with the Internet, people around the world could find your store, your business. Only the people yeah. that product came directly yeah. to you. Yeah. Right? People, so people, it was viable. Yeah, you, you have the... You know, the case of, like you said, where, where people would come into the store, but how many people who come into the store are going to buy? But at the same time, you might have an entire, you know, world of people who would buy, but mm -hmm. they can't come to the physical location of the store. There you uh, go. That so, works. yeah, definitely, uh, you know, the Internet opens that option up. Mm -hmm. And all the Internet businesses were start, starting to boom then. You know, all these little companies in this cottage industries, people working out of their homes, and I was one of them. Right. And, um, and it was great for a while, and eBay was my avenue to my clientele and marketing my merchandise. And at that point, I have to put a disclaimer in here, eBay, in my personal opinion, was no representation of what eBay is now. And um, Yeah, I wanted to actually uh, ask about that. When you first started, How? what was this... Uh, I guess was this early enough on where the uh, sort of the scammers really had no concept of Japanese armor, so it wasn't necessary for people to verify what they were buying when when the, when you started first selling armor on eBay. How did that work? Well, to verify, it's one thing. What it was is you still had it was mostly people who either had businesses with such merchandise, like serious dealers who were bringing their stuff and just offering it up through a different venue. So there were some really good pieces on there, and it, you know, serious buyers were finding, hey, I can find this stuff online. So you had good pieces coming from good people, and not that all of them had it right, but their intentions were generally good. They were trying to give the best explanation they had. They thought they were giving the correct explanations, and you were generally getting good pieces, and the prices were fair. They were a fair representation of what they should have been, but again... As soon as, you know, these items, sadly, actually, they're still quite cheap in reality when you consider the amount of history that's involved here. But Yeah, we, um, we talked about that last time, too. Yeah. yeah, they're definitely undervalued, I think. And I'm not saying that just as a dealer, but if you look at the history, if you try to reproduce even a simple Japanese helmet now using exact same techniques by hand, it would be ten times the cost it would be to buy that an original piece that's 300 years old you just couldn't do it but anyway to get back to the point well the whole market the internet you know the internet businesses so Japanese armor for the most part you know even the cheap pieces there was it was a thousand dollars or two thousand or five thousand or whatever and that's a that's a good chunk of money still and wherever there's a lot of money involved people find a way to get in there and you know grab at some of it and um, yeah, slowly the scam artists started infiltrating the market. They would, you know, offer pieces for sale that they didn't own. That was a common one originally. They'd take pictures from some other place and offer this great armor up. And, you know, people would naively bid on it and send the money away. And that was that. You know, you'd, your money was gone and there was and no... And they would dis 
the, the money would disappear into Nigeria? Somewhere, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, the other scams where people would, uh, you know, I actually dealt with a guy I had to get a lawyer involved where he tried to be me. You know, he was tell people he was me and he was offering pieces, you know, and I'm getting all this negative backlash. And like, I paid you and never got this. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But that was because then people could contact people through eBay's pages without um, sort of being censored. You could get right. directly to dealers and send pictures and links and email addresses and all this where now you can't do that. Right. So a lot of safety precautions have been built in, but the system itself now is just so rotten as far as I can see, at least the products out there. It's just I slowly over time as the as eBay changed, as at least the market and the people involved in it, it became so tainted I no longer wanted to be associated with it. And so I basically over time just withdrew. But while I was there... Um, and this may sound pompous, and people are free to disagree should they wish to, but I felt I really set the standard on, because um, I remember when you used to see an armor, you'd get like one picture of it and say, this is what's for sale. And I thought, you know, no one's going to buy that by based on one picture. You need side right. shots, back shots, and then each piece laid out. Here's the armored sleeve, here's the cote, the details of the hand, the elbow, the backside of it, and and show it all. And so I would put up 50, 60, 100 photographs um, and then write eight pages of text to go with it, you know, and, and I was really concerned. I want people, and I think I was concerned that people would be satisfied with their purchase because I was a collector and I knew what it was like to buy something and then feel like, gee, I didn't really get what I thought I was getting. Right. And so I went through... Um, a lot of effort to make sure my customers were satisfied and that really built my customer base initially on that people were extremely satisfied and that tended to be the um, the most common consensus on what it was people when they bought something from me they would say it was actually better than I had even anticipated and again that sounds pompous coming from myself but that's what it was and that's how my business actually grew was the integrity of it and a sure. lot of that, again, was based on the fact that I was a collector. Therefore, I was actually passionate about the pieces myself. So anyway, that sort of sums up eBay to a degree. I don't know if next question, if you want to move on. If, uh, you know, you got to the point where you pulled off of eBay, mm -hmm. then where did you go with, with your business? Because you, you, didn't, you didn't just stop it at that point, I, I assume. So um, and then also just like... You know, before when we talked, you had some stories about different uh, experiences you had dealing with Japanese dealers and and being in the uh, in the business in Japan. So if if we could uh, hear a little bit of uh, of things of that nature, then then uh, we sure. can go from there. Sure. So yeah, I gradually I weaned myself away from eBay slowly. It wasn't just an overnight decision as the market changed and and the competition, if you call it competition. I mean, the biggest thing I found with eBay is that, or a lot of sites for that matter, even now, is that, you know, again, it was just, there was money involved, therefore, people would come in and try to get at that money, and um, even one big dealer who's recently making a bit of a comeback, he was a, in my opinion, a fraudster, but he was a really talented fraudster. He was excellent, he putting right. up a facade, and a very sexy marketable facade you know and i you know and uh people buy that they really buy into that and um the problem was 
they weren't really getting great antiques. They were getting a great story. And so you could put something on eBay and you could write the greatest line of crap. And sure. it sounded brilliant. And you could kind of maybe go, okay, I can see why why he says that piece might have that history. But there's absolutely no way of proving that provenance or anything else. But a lie is a really great thing to market because it can be whatever you need it to be. Whereas if you right. sell an item and you just sell it based on the facts and the truth of the piece, it's often pretty bland. And even now, I, I just sold a, I sold a helmet this week and I sold a face mask and the customers still said, can you tell me who wore it, where and when, and what did they do? And I'm like, no, I can't tell you who wore it. I can say roughly when. It's between 1650 and 1725, approximately. Um, right. Who and where and when, there's no way of documenting that with a piece like this. And the customers are usually really disappointed. Damn, I, I wanted to know that so-and-so had wore it at the Battle of Sekigahara. And, and you just go... That those sort of pieces are almost impossible to find unless they belong to really high-ranking individuals where some sort of providence has followed the piece through time. And those pieces are, for the most part, accounted for. Yeah, I've, I've right. seen a lot of them in temples. They're not going to be Japan. floating around on eBay. Yeah, exactly. No, no. I, and my favorite story like that off of eBay was there was one fellow who was a an absolute dirtbag, in my opinion, but... Uh, he went on for quite a few years and he kept having to change his name and come back and, you know, recreate himself as someone else as all these scams caught up to him. And then he would just vanish and start again. Um, he said he went into Osaka Castle one day and he was taking the tour around the castle and he went down this flight of stairs where I guess you weren't supposed to go, but he worked his way down it and he came to the bottom of the stairs and noticed something in the wall and he went over and he sort of pulled out a stone and it came away and there was a helmet tucked up in behind the stone and he pulled <laughs> it out, tucked it into his bag and crept out of the building and brought it home and you know sure enough it was this helmet that had been hidden away during the you know the siege of Osaka Castle and he wrote up this great blurb on it and you're going what a crock of uh, unfortunately, the uh, the castle <laughs> is made of concrete and it's only yeah, exactly you know <laughs> only a few decades old bombed and burned to the ground and and it's yeah. concrete and and the helmet bowl that he had was something from the 18th century by design it didn't even exist at that time period and on and on and on and you're going and no one no one noticed this thing never no one you know thousands of people go through there every day it just happened to be you you know yeah <laughs> and yet the piece sold and it sold for quite a high price and and at that point you know for myself it was all about integrity you know, show them every crack, let them know the truth. And that wasn't sexy. And yet, if I could lie and say, hey, I just dug this up in the battlefields of Sekigahara yesterday and yeah. power washed it, people would bid twice as high. You know, and, and, and but I, I wouldn't go there. Amazing that people could be so stupid. Well, you know, uh, oddly enough, and somewhat <laughs> on subject, I, I was reading an article about the uh, Nigerian scams, the emails, and they make them look fake intentionally be to basically weed out anyone who, you know, would be uh, kind smart of, enough. To... Yeah, exactly. So basically the, the Nigerian emails are obviously fake just so that, you know, only the, the stupidest of people will actually respond to them. And, mm. uh, you know, it almost seems similar to this idea here. 
Um, actually, yeah, I do have a... somebody that stupid isn't then going to be able to figure out how to take legal recourse or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and it's a hard thing to do anyway, isn't it? So you know, I have a question yeah. about these uh, sort of the the quote unquote fake pieces. Are these modern replicas being passed off as original pieces, or are these just uh, pre-modern pieces that are basically just given a completely fake description? Okay, well, we're sort of jumping into a different topic, so but if we're we're going down that route. The most common thing you see, especially, well, eBay, but um, actually almost all sites, most dealers, is when they're offering a full set of armor, they're offering, they offer it up as a gusoku, which means a complete group, a complete set, and they say, here's a 16th century gusoku. And you go, well, okay, potentially maybe the, all the pieces are 16th century, but the armor itself is a composite grouping of miscellaneous mismatched pieces from other sets that have been compiled to have all the component parts necessary to create a gusoku. So, right. you know, the helmet bowl, the face mask, the shoulder guards, etc., working your way down. And so, but obviously if these pieces don't match each other, their monetary value, not to undermine them, I mean, they're still historical pieces, but if you think a set that was created in the 1700s, for example, that survived intact to this day, restoration and other details aside, all those pieces were made to be together, have stayed together, and are still together today, in my mind is worth more money than a pile of miscellaneous pieces that have been amalgamated to create what looks like a set. Right. And most of the stuff that's on the market the vast majority, I'd say 90% of the time, what you see available for sale are composite groupings, these amalgamated sets. And the, unfortunately, the, the Japanese are, by the most part, the, the vast, they, they have created the mo uh, most of these sets because of the way the auction market works in Japan, where to get top dollar for your armor when you put it up at auction, they break the set up at auction and they make you bid for each piece. So they don't offer it as a set when they put it out. They sell the helmet first and then the mempo, the face mask, and then the shoulder guards. So if you really want that set, you have to fight for each piece. And that, and therefore the seller gets the best price. Yeah, but what often happens, money big time. Yeah, but what often happens is, especially in Japan too, there's some collectors, all they want or helmets, or they only collect face masks, or they just need a similar looking set of shoulder guards to finish off an armor they have. And so they, they grab those pieces at higher prices and take it out. And once that's happened, this again, this set that's been together for hundreds of years is compromised. And the one key piece is gone, and everything else after that's kind of not as important, and it all sort of trickles off in different directions. And ends up being amalgamated into other items once the key right. components are gone. Right. And to the Japanese, they say 70% of the value of an armor is in its helmet. So once the helmet's gone, the rest is kind of everyone's like, meh, who cares? And it sort of falls to the side. And it's a real pity. And that's how the market works. So, and then, but to foreigners for the most part, uh, and including Japanese these days, who are generally ignorant of the topic of armor, they know what it looks like, but they don't understand, is this a composite or is this an actual grouping? Original right. Soku. They shovel it overseas, where it doesn't matter if it's composite, it's still really cool. 
but it's not as marketable in Japan as it is overseas. And so most of them come out of the country after that, if that made sense. Yeah. Uh, so, but fakes, if we go into fakes, so that's the most common is you get the, um, the composite sets. Then you get the ones that are composite sets with modern pieces mixed in. And there are some really well-made fake pieces out there that can blend in quite well. And some people have no idea for years. I actually, I'm a, potentially about to close the biggest deal I've ever done in the armor business with a gentleman. And he sent me 10 images the other day of various helmets that appeal to him. And of the 10, four were modern fake helmets. And I said, well, that's a fake. I can get you one of those, but it's, well, it's not a fake. It's a modern reproduction. Right, and, right. And I said, there's four, four reproductions in there, two fakes, and then there was the other four originals. And there was another big mistake he was making in those originals, which, well, since I'm on this subject, I might as well go into is, most people, when you look at Japanese helmets, you see the four crests that they put on. They're called maidate. Maidate, yeah. Yeah, and then they have, sometimes they have rear crests and top crests, but maidate are the most common. And some of these can be really spectacular, you know, dragons and uh, praying mantis and all these things. They tend to see the four crests, which are often very elaborate and really gaudy, and that's what they fall in love with. And they tend to miss the real antique, which is the piece behind it. And the reason is, is the four crests were always made of very light materials, uh, balsa wood, leather, you know, just right. wood. They were meant to be lightweight because you didn't want to have all that weight on the helmet bowl. And so they tended not to survive the wear and tear of time like the helmet that it was originally designed to fit on would have been made of iron or steel, depending on the piece. So original Maidate are very scarce. So most of the Maidate you see on helmets these days are reproductions. And some right. of them would be excellent. I mean, really well done, beautiful. They look great. They're very accurate, perhaps, in appearance. But it's a modern thing on an old helmet. But your, your eye is attracted to that. You want the helmet because of this Maidate. And you're paying $8,000 for that helmet because it looks fabulous with this huge Maidate on it. But actually, the Maidate is worth 150 bucks, and the and the helmet itself is probably only worth 2,000. But you paid basically, you put 6,000 into the 150 dollar modern Maidate for all intents and purposes. If you follow me, if you took that off and just tried to resell the helmet, you'd get you know a fraction of what you originally paid. And if you try to sell the Maidate to anyone who knows them, they go, "Well, they make those in China. I can get five of them. Why why would I give you that?" So. Right. People get sucked into that one, um, and that's what this fellow did too. He said, well, I want one like this. I said, well, actually, if you take that off and look at the helmet behind it, it's nothing special. And that, But that's really what you should be investing in, is the real antique, not the crest, unless the crest itself is original. And the other fakes are, um, and this is a big one, the, and the main one is, um, well, there are two groups actually, but the most common one is the Kawari Kabuto. Are you oh, familiar? yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah. those are the, the grotesque ones, as they call them, the, the, the distorted-shaped helmets. Well, yes, yeah, so they're big and splashy. Yeah, historically they were, they're built on very, very basic uh, kabutobachi or hachi, the helmet bowls. Basically right. a zunari bachi, which is a helmet bowl that fits the head. Um, not much different in shape than a modern combat helmet. 
No, they're they're pretty much as basic basic as you can get in shape and and were yeah. intended that way. Exactly, but very effective, functional, easy to make. Any armor right. maker could make them. You could punch them out, you know, ten a day. Whereas if you're trying to put sixty two riveted helmet bowls together, it took someone with a lot of skill and a lot of time. It's right. not good when you got to put a lot of men into the field, right? So, Zanotti Bachi though did not, for the most part, appeal to the average samurai. Well. Especially not the average samurai, the upper ranks of the samurai class, because they're pretty basic. So right. they started to, you know, elaborate on them. They would decorate them, and they add these false uh, facades to them, which were generally paper mache and light or molded leather superstructures that sat or were not sat, but they were adhered to the top of the zanadi bachi. Right, I, I think we talked about it last time, but uh, yeah. the one of some of the more famous ones were the uh, like uh, Katoki Omasa's court cap, exactly uh, that extends up into the sky, or you know you see some of the other ones where it's like a fish tail or, exactly. or uh, yes, uh, you know something like that, a wave pattern or something. But yeah, but I mean I think I think you're you're right. The 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 larger point to all of this is that these are on very basic helmets that were functional. And extremely functional to the point where it didn't make sense even for a samurai who had means to buy a more intricately designed, you know, metalworked helmet. It, it didn't make sense from a functional standpoint for him to spend that money when he could get a, a helmet that served just as well functionally in, a, in the Zunati. But then, like you said, to make it different, they would do these paper mache things or, or put, you know, horns on it or whatever they ended up sure. doing. The problem is, and this is where we get into the fakes, is that it's a paper mache superstructure with lacquer on it for the most part, or, or molded leather, on a Zanotti Bachi. Well, what happened is sometime in the early 60s in Japan, and now Zanotti Bachi are, I wouldn't say, you know, they're not a dime a dozen. They should be about a thousand and thousand to twelve hundred dollars a dozen, but um they're all over Japan still because they were the most commonly produced form of helmet bowl ever made during the samurai period as such. So there's still, if you're going to find a helmet bowl in Japan, odds are the first one you'll stumble across will be a Zanotti Bachi. They're right. all over the place. So in the 60s, a certain gentleman was commissioned by another gentleman to start making some Kawari Kabuto. Well, what do you need to make a Kawari Kabuto? You find a Zanotti Bachi and you build a superstructure on it. Well, since Zanotti Bachi are very common and still relatively very cheap often, especially if they're in bad condition, you can take an authentic Zanotti Bachi, an original, and build a superstructure on it. Well, in the 60s, there were still this, the gentleman who was made most of the fakes that are now commonly accepted as some of the best Kawari Kabuto in the world and well-publicized all over the world, was old enough to know many of the old school techniques to make these things. He had skills in lacquer work, paper mache, all these old school techniques that actually probably very few people even in Japan now have knowledge on. And so he would take these old helmet bowls and he would recreate, basically using authentic techniques, new kawari kabuto on top of old zanari bachi. So now if you take this helmet, and, of course, a lot of these now are 50 years old or more, 60 years old. So they've actually sure. been weathered and damaged and refixed and stuff. 
if you the most common way to test a helmet to see if it's open is to look inside the liner. Well, you look inside the liner, you peel it back somehow, you're going to see an old helmet bowl on the inside because you never get to see the superstructure, right? That's buried right. under the lacquer. So you look inside right. the helmet bowl, you shine a flash on there. Yeah, that's absolutely authentic. They pass, right? The only way to prove it's not authentic is to break a piece off and test it. Well, no one's going to do that at the price of these things. And right. as these items... Because if you're wrong in it and it is a real one, then you've just broken it. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is, though, restoring armor, which armor is a biodegradable thing because it's made from organic materials, always, right. always, always has to be restored. And so there is no such thing as a completely authentic mint 16th century armor. They've all seen multiple cases of restoration over their life of that item, the, the time span of that item. So whether it's the lacing or whatever, lacing usually lasts 100, 150 years in perfect conditions. So they've all been restored multiple times over the time, over time. Now lacquer, lacquer is still lacquer if it's done professionally. So if they lacquer these helmets again, how, how can you say, well, this lacquer is different than old lacquer? It's not, it's the same thing. So cosmetically, or at least on the exterior, they're absolutely authentic. And there's no way to really differentiate, short of, again, breaking them up and seeing what paper it was and doing carbon dating. So what happened is this fellow produced a whole array of absolutely amazing Kawari Kabuto. And they all flooded onto the market about the same time, in the late 60s, early 70s. And then suddenly all these books came out on the subject. And one of the most well-known Japanese authors on the subject of Japanese armor, who was also my teacher at one point, was named Dr. Uh, Sasama. And when he was creating many of his early books, he was seeking material to put in his books. And people would, of course, they would send him a black and white photo of this amazing looking Kawari Kabuto. And he would appraise it based solely on those photographs and go, wow, that's amazing. It's this, this, it's that. And he would put that in his book with the photograph and his write up on it. And the books went to market. And suddenly these pieces were given all this legitimacy that they didn't deserve. But once they were out there and with his name right, specifically, right. and no one was going to test it. And if you know Japan as, as I do, once someone in authority has said something is kosher, it's kosher. Even if we all know it's not. Yeah, nobody's going to go question it No. at that point because, well, you know, the foremost authority already said X, so... Yeah, therefore, leave it alone. And I've got spanked quite a few times in Japan by other dealers, really, you know, guys who are huge in the industry, by going, that's a fake. You know, and I would say this out loud at an auction or something. You go, that's a fake. And they'd go, shh, stop, you know, don't. And I go, well, it's an obvious fake. And they go, yes, yes, of course it's a fake. But the point is, it's a great fake, and it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> and you should be playing your cards right. And one day that great fake will slide into your hands and then it's your turn to move it on and make a good chunk of change while you do it. And I would say, but that's wrong because I'm stupid and naive and just really a bad businessman. I should just take the money. But, um, and they were always going, no, you don't understand, you know. And that was the thing. So you have all these fakes that have built their way into the market and they're so well established now that you can't extract them without doing irrevocable damage 
to what most people consider to be, well, what Kawari Kabuto are. And that's also true of armors. Um, and again, most of the knowledgeable collectors, they know this and they don't buy those pieces. But um, they're so sexy that everyone else who doesn't really know what they they want, they just want something cool with a lot of pizzazz. They, you know, they, right. they get enough of these pieces. So there was also another man who produced a lot of fake. Uh, I wouldn't call him fakes. He was a Gendai smith, which means he was a modern smith. Right. And had he lived a century and a half ago, he would have been amongst the greatest of Japanese armor makers for his techniques. But he didn't live a century and a half ago. He lived, he died, uh, I think, in the mid-90s. But he made phenomenal, his specialty was um, uchidashi, which means to emboss. And he made the um, somen, the full okay. face masks. And okay. his face masks were superb, absolutely stunning. But what happened is now enough time has passed that a lot of these now are taken to be authentic pieces, and he produced a huge number of them. But also, and here's another example, I had one of these, well, I've had several of his masks over the years, many actually. Um, I had one at one point, and a Japanese dealer wanted to buy it from me, a very good Japanese dealer, a man that is a good friend of mine and a very well-known dealer. And he said, I really want that mask. And I said, well, okay, I'll sell it to you. And I gave it to him basically at a dealer's rate. And I reappeared wow. at his shop, I think it was two weeks later, unannounced, just had to be in the, happened to be in the area and dropped in. And in the case, in the window display case, was the, the so-man that I had sold him. And I went over and looked at it, and I noticed under the underside of the chin that the name of a famous Japanese armor maker of the Myochin line was right. had engraved into the underside of the chin where famous smiths used to sign their pieces. Well, that name didn't exist two weeks before, but it had been perfectly engraved into that mask two weeks later. And, right. and if you weren't highly, highly knowledgeable about how engraving was done, you would accept that as a legitimate signature of a famous smith, and this piece went from now, whatever it was, a certain amount of money, to something that was probably worth five to ten times more right because you attach that signature so and someone will buy that believing that to be true and they will probably remarket it to someone else who will believe it to be true and it'll go on and get appraised as being true and these things filter their way into the market and so and I was really disappointed to see that but that is so common and so again now Go ahead. I, I'm interested to know how you handled that situation. Like, did you say anything? Because you 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 described no. this person as a friend of yours. No, I didn't say anything because he's he's a very powerful man in, in the business world there, and he's a friend, and there's nothing I could say about it. Right. <laughs> uh, and it sounds perhaps like a cop out, but it's Japanese culture, and he was definitely uh, a die senpai to me. And right. So before right. I you know, bit my tongue and just knew what I'd seen disappointed me and it was wrong, but it's not my place to change that at that point in time. So, and what I have tried to do over the years though, is take what I've seen and tell people, well, this is happening, but usually they think I'm just a crank. I'm just miserable. I'm just pissed off because I'm not, I haven't made a fortune in this industry or whatever else, you know, and I'm going, no, no, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. But Again, the truth isn't necessarily appealing. The lies are far more attractive. 
who everyone wants to get a mask made by the Smith with a signature on it because they're so rare, <laughs> you know. So he's actually probably doing more to satisfy the world than I am, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. You know, I uh, it's maybe a, a very basic question, but it, it just sort of occurred to me. Not 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 off topic, but uh, as far as the the market for this uh, Japanese armor, this being a limited supply, at least in theory, th does the market ever dry up? Do you do you, does it ever reach a point where all the people who have purchased their item are, are holding on to it? And it, it the see, it seems to me that it would be kind of difficult to maintain a business in in something with such a limited supply. But is that not the case? Um, it's a really good question, and it's something I've pondered, and I have I covered it in one of my books actually, but. There is enough armor out there to keep me as a serious dealer going for the rest of my life. And even though a huge amount of great armor has left Japan, it's one of these things that it may cycle at a certain point. There's still definitely a lot of armor in Japan. Finding it is another thing altogether. Good armor. But what's cycled out of Japan at one point, it, will, it may cycle back or it will continue to cycle. And I've always told my customers, just remember, you're not really, this isn't yours. You are paying for the privilege of being able to maintain the curatorship over this piece for a period of time. And it will move on to someone else over time. I want to see the pieces go to people who will appreciate them and take care of them to preserve them for future generations. So there, there's enough material already in the market to keep cycling that anyone who's a serious dealer will always be able to cycle it because as collectors come and go you know live and die material comes back into the market there's still more there obviously and my where I was good I think is I was really good at sourcing it and um, that's what I did well, and I really enjoyed it yeah it's also like you said before when you were describing how you got into it if somebody continues on, I mean, they're, they, they may take a, a set or two out of circulation by holding on to it, but as they get into it and find more stuff, they're going to accumulate more and probably not hold on to it, so then we'll, we'll sell what they have exactly. had previously or move it along or, or, or in some sense. So, um, yeah. The biggest, yeah, I can see it being a fluid business. Yeah, it, the biggest problem actually is... Um, you, you really want to get these items into the market. And some people, I actually felt guilty originally when I started really doing this as a business. Is, is this wrong? I'm taking these traditional Japanese items and I'm taking them out of Japan and sending them abroad. But then you've been to Japan and you've seen the youth of Japan and the interest most Japanese have in their history. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so a lot of these pieces were just rotting away. And they right. get to a certain point where they're so damaged, it's no longer monetarily viable to restore them. The piece is never going to be worth that much again to put that much money back into bringing it back to life as such. And I'd seen that so many times, like fabulous armors, just rotting, literally rotting away, you know, and they were so far gone. And you could see the, the incredible beauty and all the work that had gone into these pieces originally and realized it's it's too late it's done it and um that really shocked me so i realized no we have to get these things out 
to people who will preserve it. It doesn't matter what nationality, where, or whatever, as long as they care about the item and will preserve it. And um, so I have no guilt about that anymore. And l legally, at least, there's um, you know no restrictions on exporting armor from Japan as long as it's not a considered a national treasure. And again, all those items are pretty much documented. So everything else is, um, as far as they're concerned, go for it. You know, just get the export license on the way out. So, right. Yeah. Also, I wanted to comment. Uh... You know, getting back for just a second to the sort of misrepresented pieces or even modern replicas that are sort of passed off as as uh, originals and then eventually accepted as originals. I think Nate can comment on this better than me, but you see a lot of parallels between that and Japanese history in general, just history sources yeah. and how, how Japanese history, how it's seen now and new information coming out or, or incorrect information being passed on over the years and suddenly being ex accepted as as. As historical, put out by the, fact. Uh, as historical fact and put out by the authority. But uh, as far as Nate's concerned, I think even the, the Nagashino paper he wrote really oh, really pinpoints yeah. that type of thing. Certainly. I mean, I, I think it's, it's actually easier for me uh, in the sense that, you know, okay, so I'm reevaluating sources like the Shinshoki or the Shinshokoki and and uh, pointing out that previous research was was done on these and was based on incorrect assumptions about their accuracy or legitimacy or or, or whatever. But because there's not quite, I mean, there's academic reputations or or lack of reputations in the case of people who mentioned. Uh, but you know, there's not. I mean, that that's involved, but it's not quite threatening people's livelihoods or 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 so forth. Uh, we're Whereas I think with Trevor, like you said, you know, you, you you've got people who are making immense amounts of money off of this. What basically, I I don't know if I'd go so far to say as falsification of history, but in in the um okay, well let's let's call it that falsification of history, uh and and perpetuating these these you know incorrect concepts and ideas of what made up samurai armor. You know, it's it's like we talked about before with the the people wanting a daimyo armor, uh, right. and you know, give me a daimyo grade armor uh, or 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 whatever, and not really understanding what they're asking. Right. Uh, Although Nate, know, I would uh, I would have to point out that I think Fujimoto Masayuki would probably disagree with you about uh, there being no monetary damage due to you know changed information. Well, my you know, <laughs> my you response know, to him would be Shogunai. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, you know, as you were saying, for the Jap for example, with armor, a lot of the information, even in Japanese, is wrong. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is, is that when they went into the Meiji period, everything that existed before, for the most part, it was, as far as, you know, the Japanese were concerned, it's done. It's over. It's it, totally irrelevant. And this knowledge about armor and armor making and all the details and the why certain things were made it just fell off to the side no one cared for 20 sure. 30 years until maybe you get into the early 20th century and then people start going oh that's kind of cool we should start to think about that and then they started to write on it again and so a lot of what was documented even in Japanese was wrong because they didn't document it all the way through, or at least not in a concise way. And then when the Europeans come in, they're basing it on 
other assumptions. And a lot of it's based on, of course, information that was written in the uh, 18th and 19th century, which took fact and twisted it into some sort of really, you know, what would you say, fanciful, sort of mythical story to make it more, uh, right. you know, it was better propaganda, basically. You know, well, and, and this is this is where I, I, I kind of wish Travis had been here because he could speak to this better than I could uh, with his uh, background in, in art. But you see, uh, you know, parallels in the in the art world and like the uh, the graphic arts. Exactly. Where traditional woodblock print painting, which we forget sometimes, was not an aesthetic thing. It was a commercial thing. These were basically the posters of the day advertising plays or, or whatever they you know they happen to be sure they weren't uh, but, documenting I mean, it was ma- it was a mass fact. media thing yeah they uh, weren't so, documenting like, a reality they were documenting they right. were creating an image that appealed but they weren't documenting exactly. factual things so exactly and they they were certainly not high culture uh but then you see you know the the major restoration come and these kind of things kind of fall by the wayside as the uh, as Japan is swept up in the whole drive to modernize and westernize and you have Japanese artists taking up western style painting and uh, incorporating uh, different western modes of art but then uh, and particularly in like the 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 190 you know 1900s 1910 period um, you see a return to traditional printmaking and various artists starting to to get back into that well the reason is they did so was because these prints were so popular overseas as quote unquote japanese culture that there was this huge market for it exactly so actually had I, I can't remember the names um specifically but there was a uh, one particular uh art dealer who created this entire studio of artists to to uh produce these prints that were 90% for outside export. Uh, right. So I kind of see the same, you know, this is a parallel to what we were talking about earlier with the Kawadi Kabuto, uh, where, you know, these were really not all that common in, in general, but that's what sells. So that's what let's, let's produce and, and create this kind of history of, yes, this is really what, what Japanese art is, or, you know, in this case, Japanese armor is, Exactly, uh, and, and it builds up this backstory. Whereas, you know, similar to the Kawari Kabuto, if you go back and and look at, and and that's not to take anything away from the skill or the the quality of you know the woodblock prints, but somebody in 17 you know 80 uh, in Japan was not looking at uh, you know Toshisa Sharaku and and thinking, wow, this is fantastic, uh, you know, a fantastic piece of high art. So, you know, the, the, I just think that's an interesting parallel in, in my head. And you see the influence of of uh, opening up to greater markets and yeah. what that does to the to the to the art. I think one thing a lot of buyers make a mistake on, too, is they assume because they're buying it from a dealer in Japan, for example, that because it's coming from a Japanese person, they must understand the item. Therefore, it must be legitimate. Sure. And that. That has that is a complete. You're extremely naive to believe that. Um, most Japanese dealers that will sell armor will have little to no idea what it is, other than it's armor, and most of them will spin a great story. And in Japan, the rule is, if you buy a fake, it was your fault for being dumb enough not to have realized it was fake to begin with. 
So right. it wasn't that, so I mean, that's fault. like saying that just because somebody's Italian, the uh, the uh, the Da Vinci or the uh, the Michelangelo painting yeah. that he's selling you must be must must be accurate. Or he's going to be, be an expert on that subject matter. Exactly. Right. Right. He's going to know exactly what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. um, no, I mean, it has nothing to do with anything, really. <laughs> I remember seeing a couple of photographs. They were um, early in the Second World War, well, actually prior to the official sort of American version of the Second War version, excuse me, uh, when you guys came into it. But uh, when the Japanese were fighting in China and when there was... He decided Jap- to show up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this uh, Japanese soldier had been sent a, a dough, a cuirass from home, and he wore it into battle. Why you would do that? I'm sure this was a propaganda move. So he wears this old samurai body armor into a battle. And um, and then it was a big big thing in the media in Japan. This is like 1937 or something. And he's right, posed right. in the front of the newspaper with this body armor on and his rifle and everything, except the body armor's on backwards. <laughs> and it just shows you they had no idea by then. So they were so disconnected. So again, to assume a Japanese person, and this is probably a big propaganda stunt, so you'd think they would have done some research, they still got it wrong. And I mean, even on a modern version of that, I went to the uh, Jidai Matsuri in Nikko, uh, not Nikko, I'm sorry, in Nara. I don't right. know if you're familiar with that festival. I just happened to be there on business, and it was happening, so I thought I'd walk down there and take a look. And they have all the guys, you know, dressed in armor and different time periods, uh, you know, different clothing and stuff. Well, having participated in the Soma Festival for years, where they take it extremely serious how they present themselves and conduct themselves and wear their armor, I looked at these guys who'd been sort of forced to wear these cheap mock-ups, and, you know, they were just... It was it was pathetic, really. They pieces were hanging off them and falling off, and they had pieces upside down and stuff. And I was like, "That's atrocious. That really is." And so I walked over and said, "This is wrong. You have to fix this." And they were kind of taken back, but I said, "No, no, this is wrong." And I showed them, and I took off the shin guards and turned them the right way around and laced them up again and showed them how it's done. And I managed to get them all fixed up in time before they set off on their march. But what I thought is, tourists pay money to fly all the way around the world to come to Japan to see this festival and to see things like this. Oh, that's what a samurai should look like. And yet they've got it completely wrong. Sure. sure. <laughs> so classic. Yeah. Very classic and really heart rendering stuff. But there's another, there's a, there's a very powerful dealer in uh, Kyoto. And if the man had any integrity, he would be, the premier authority on Japanese armor. Just, he knows it all inside out. Um, but right. his love of money dominates his, this is a personal opinion, of course. His um, love of money dominates everything he does. And he's so knowledgeable about Japanese history. One of the we'll, things we'll make does, sure we get him, uh, we'll make sure we, we interview him next week and then yeah. <laughs> he can, he can uh, provide his rebuttal. Is um, he creates these fantastic histories to go with the armors he sells and he's such an authority now that and again most people don't have any ability to as you said rebut these things well where's your where's your evidence because most people have no idea about this subject matter so when someone with some sort of you know well-established name comes forward and says this is this because i've done the research on it there you go it's taken as legitimate and he sells stuff based on, I mean, you know, 
creating again these false histories. These false, you know, he glues old papers into boxes and you know writes the kanji on them and you know spills a cup of coffee and drags it through the dirt and you know adds some age to it and then opens up the lid of the box and goes, look, look there, <laughs> see what's written right. there. And he breaks down and it's it's very convincing. And if you don't know this though, it's extremely convincing. But once you know this man and his business technique, you go, oh, God, that's so wrong. But for everyone who's unaware of that, they've just bought an amazing piece of history. Sure. I'm sounding very negative at this point, aren't I? <laughs> Not really. So, well, you've, you've, more, you've more, more, real, more realistic, I would say. Yeah, but see, that's because the two of you have been to Japan. You know, <laughs> you know the truth, right? <laughs> True. So, <laughs> so, yeah, but before we went, we, we bought into the entire myth mythology i think yeah yeah well, and i think it's i think it's important to 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 say here that i mean there's this is no different than anything that goes on in the united states or in canada or in england or anywhere else where you have people who you know on the history side are are taught history a certain way uh and and so therefore believe that and then you also have people who i mean i i would imagine that the the same thing goes on whether it's you know U.S. dealers selling quote unquote Civil War items, um, you know, or or uh, you know British dealers in uh, in medieval armor on that side of the world or or, or whatever. Sure. I would imagine you have these sorts of characters doing these things and and taking advantage of the fact that um, most people. Oh interested in buying these things are not necessarily i mean they're going to dealers for a reason because like yeah. you said before because they don't have the knowledge base okay and but I, trust I'll, I'll people sort of, to do that i'll sort of deflate your argument a little bit there although i do agree with most of it okay japanese armor is probably one of the least well documented subject matters out there for a lot of historical things for example sure. if you're interested in netsuke books galore if you're interested in japanese pottery piles of books um Armor. There's a lot of books, but mostly they're vague. On, they're, there's very little in actual information. There's nice right. pictures. They look great on a coffee table, but they won't teach you anything. And the truth, like good information on this subject matter, is really, really hard to find. And you know, again, even with my books. So, so you know, when I'm writing my books, I, I've tried to take my books to big publishers. They're not going to publish them because. They don't have all the sexy pictures. They don't cover the sort of the cliche subject matter. You know, sure. they're not they're not marketable on the big scale. I'm saying, yeah, but this tells you the truth about all these things and all the details that all these other books never get into. And they go, ah, that's that's not what we do, right? Well, self publishing is neither affordable or practical for the most part. It puts the books out of a you know a really a viable range for people to buy. Right. Uh, so what you need is a catchy title like uh, you know true tales of skimpily dressed you know, lie, lying and deceit so. in the Japanese armor industry or something fear and loathing yeah. in the Japanese armor industry yeah, yeah there you oh. go well if you know anyone who buy that subject matter let me know and I'll talk to them <laughs> I don't uh, you know I've I've I have two more books that I've completed just sitting here I'm not even going to try to publish there's no point <laughs> you know every time I do I just lose money you know. And yet, you know, I took a, a I think a, a really good book project to um, Osprey. They, you know, no interest whatsoever. You know, and because again, it's not, it's not that certain calculation that they have. 
will this appeal will this appeal to this demographics is there enough in there for this do we cover that you know there, it has to be this round sort of topic of items you have to cover them all otherwise it's just not a viable book you're going well yeah but none of the others ever get to this point of information they always stop short let's go all the way here but it's sad so real information much like what you guys have done with your page for years gathering all this hard information and putting it out there probably it's going to be hard to ever put that into a a book that you know a company's probably not going to come forward and say geez we really respect what you've done we'd like to market that it's you know um yeah, the world uh, the world is uh, all about self-publishing now. I think that's probably the only option for anyone who's who's basically putting together something that isn't a quote-unquote popular marketable commercial. thing. A commercial, commercial, yeah. Yeah, but that makes it very hard to do. Very hard. Right. You know, I've spent a lot of time on my books, and uh, like I said, I've got two complete, and I'm not even going to bother to print. And I've got other things I've done for years, and you just realize they're not viable. They're not viable, and... You know, people write me all the time still. I used to be naive enough to do this. Say, well, could you explain this item to me? And I would write a full page back and I'd explain all the details. And then, of course, it would show up on eBay in their item description, <laughs> you know, as they were selling this. Yeah, and I didn't realize what I'd been doing. Is People are not really willing to pay for information. Hey, you're just lucky that uh, Wikipedia doesn't have a heavy Japanese armor section. Yeah, well, not yet. Yeah, I'm sure they're working on it. Um yeah, but no, the fact I that you write anymore, then, then maybe they will. Yeah, well, I've, I've just, like I said, I've kind of clammed up. I'm not giving my information away anymore. In fact, I'm doing better business these days since I've stopped. Like my homepage, I've just let it die in the vine. I, I have some good clientele and people I deal with, and it sounds really bad, but I, I, um, I don't have to be bothered with all the ignorance that generally seems to go with it. And I can just focus right. on what I really like and sell to people who are very serious and knowledgeable about these items. So it's a it's a nice way to go about it. And that's sad for a lot of the good customers I've had for years and years and years who are maybe not big players in the game. But then again, you know, I've got to keep moving forward as well. So. All right. That's it for part one of our talk. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Uh, in the meantime, please go to SamuraiPodcast.com to get caught up on any podcast episodes you may have missed. And also please support the podcast with the links provided. If you shop on Amazon.com, and everyone does, please use our link. Go to Amazon to make your purchases. doesn't cost you a penny, but it kicks a little bit back our way to pay for the podcast. And be sure to check out the Samurai Archives bookstore and the t-shirt shop. You'll, you'll find all those links there at SamuraiPodcast.com. And we appreciate the help. 